Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we conclude our series, God's Perfect Work Through Imperfect People, based on the book of Esther. Today, lead pastor David Fossil has us look closely at what it means to live for God in a godless culture. He reminds us that as Christ followers, we'll face conflict for doing the right things. But he also gives us some pointers on living for Jesus as we remember and celebrate God's victories in our lives. There was an older lady that was driving around in her Mercedes in a packed parking lot at a grocery store, and uh, she was going up and down the aisle, and, and she couldn't find a parking spot, and uh, finally she saw someone coming out with their shopping cart, so she, you know, she did what a lot of us do, she followed him, and uh, just kind of waited and parked and turned her blinker on, and she did what you're supposed to do when you're waiting for a parking spot. And uh, so the person pulled out and left, and she started to slowly pull her Mercedes into the parking spot, and all of a sudden this... This uh, young kid with, a, with a, a sports car came tearing around the corner and pulled into the parking spot. And she was not happy. And he got out and he was all cocky and he was strutting by her to go into the grocery store. And she rolled down her window and she says, that was not nice. I was waiting for that spot. Um, why would you do that? And, and he said, I don't care. I am young and I'm very fast. And he just kind of smirked and he kept walking. Well, he was only in the grocery store just a couple minutes. He came out and to his horror, he saw that this lady in her Mercedes was backing up into his car and then moving forward and then backing up. I'm just, just crushing his car. You know, and he came running. He goes, what are you doing, lady? Why would you do that? That is not cool. And she goes, I don't care. I am old and I'm very rich. We would never do that, would we? Get even, get our revenge on people. Um, I think uh, we'd like to think we wouldn't, but in our own subtle ways, we do that. Uh, you know, when we're just getting to the end here of Esther chapter uh, chapter 9, the whole book. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed studying it and sharing it with you. Uh, when you get to the end of the story, chapter 9, which is the culmination of the story, it sure seems like the Jews are getting even. It sure seems like they are taking their revenge on the Persians. Because as you're going to see, there's a lot of people dying in this chapter. Literally. If you've read ahead, as I've encouraged you to do, there are a lot of people getting killed in this chapter. What you're going to very quickly see, and if you're just joining us, um, they're not getting their revenge. Um, They're not taking advantage uh, of the Persians. They're literally protecting their homes. They are fighting for their families. And um, well, as we wrap up, if you'll take your study guide out of your program, it, it, in a way, chapter nine summarized for us the entire chapter and the entire book and the entire study. We're, we're going to talk about today what it means to live for God in a godless culture, living in a society, living in a culture that um, doesn't live for God. How do you do that? And five or six principles that I think will be helpful to you as as uh, as you as you leave here and go to schools and places of work and families that don't always live for Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Uh, chapter nine starts out and here's what we read verses one and two. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. For the last seven chapters, the Jews have been living under this edict, under this law, in which they could be annihilated. And the exact day is given when you could attack the Jews. That day happens at the beginning of chapter 9. Nine months go by between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 9 is so significant because the day 
has finally arrived. And I've highlighted for you the people that are going to attack the Jews, how they feel about them. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews ended up getting the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. So at the beginning of chapter nine, you have people that hate the Jews, consider themselves to be enemies of the Jews, and their goal is to kill and destroy them. Now, to give you context about what is happening here, let's put the next slide up there. There are two competing edicts or laws going on here. Um, a couple chapters ago, uh, the former prime minister, a guy by the name of Haman, tricks the king into signing edict number one, which has gone and become a law. It stated that the Persians could attack and kill the Jews and keep whatever possessions they found in, in the houses of the Jews. That happens at the beginning of chapter nine. That day has finally arrived. Now, once the king realizes he's been tricked, once he realizes that his wife's a Jew, he wants to backtrack. But law wouldn't allow him to abolish edict number one. So what he does is his new prime minister, a guy by the name of Mordecai, comes up with a new edict, a new law to counterbalance the first one. And the, the second one said this, the Jews could defend themselves. So if they, if they were attacked, they could defend themselves. And if they killed someone while protecting their families, anyone could keep their possessions of the people that attacked. Now, if, if you're living in Persia at the time and edict number two comes out, you got to read between the lines. Everybody understands that when the king authorizes edict number two, law number two, what he's really saying is don't touch the Jews. I know what I said in edict number one, but now I'm changing my, don't mess with the Jews. My wife's Jewish. Don't mess with them. My prime minister is Jewish. Don't mess with them. And yet, when we come to the beginning of chapter 9 on this specific day, 13th day of the 12th month, when edict number 1 can go into place, there is groups and mobs of people all over the Persian Empire that want to attack. And someone would wonder, well, if the king says no, who are all these people? Three possible groups. Number one, uh, anti-Semites. That's a phrase that is used to refer to people that just hate Jews because of their ethnicity. And unfortunately, um, that has been quite popular for the last couple thousand years. Every culture and civilization seems to have a group of people that just doesn't like Jews or they don't like certain people with color skin or they it's just the world we live in. There are some anti-Semites going on here in chapter nine. Uh, some people think it's just friends of Haman, the, 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 the prime minister that got killed. All his buddies are still around. And they're not benefiting from their from their best friend being in charge. And so they want to get their revenge. And the third group, and there's no easy way to say this or nice way to say it. It's probably just people wanting to get ahead. They're thinking, oh, wait a minute. So I'm allowed to go down the street because I got this Jewish family that lives right at the end of the street. I can go to their house. I can kill them, take their Honda Accord, their flat screen TV. Is that what I is that what edict number one says? Yep. So they're like, let's go. So it's a combination of those three groups of people that now at the beginning of chapter nine says we're going to ignore edict number two or we're just going to try and outfight them and we're going to take their stuff. We're going to kill them. Here's the first principle I want to make sure that you understand. When you are trying to live for God, when you are trying to stand up for Jesus, you can expect, you can take it to the bank 
There will be people who don't like you. There will be people who will try and hurt you. There will be people literally who consider themselves to be enemies of yours. You will constantly, says Paul in Ephesians, you will constantly be at war, spiritually speaking. Every single one of us, you try and stand up for Jesus, walk out that door. Satan knows you've been here today and he's coming after you. You've got to know that. You've got to realize that and understand that. One of my favorite subjects in high school and in college was history, specifically World War II history. And whether you're a history buff or not, though, um, everyone knows um, that our country was not prepared when Pearl Harbor happened. Would you agree? We were overconfident. We were not prepared. We didn't think it was going to happen. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of Christians like that. As our government was over, uh, underprepared, overconfident, whatever you want to say, before Pearl Harbor happened, I meet a lot of Christians that are surprised that they're getting attacked. And I want to, why are you so surprised? It, it says it over and over and over in the scripture. You can expect to be attacked. You can expect that, right? Jesus said it this way. Let me show you. Let's put it up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, here's what he said. He said, blessed are those of you who are persecuted because of righteousness. Persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, when you try and live the right way, that's what righteousness means, you're going to be persecuted. And when you're persecuted, you're blessed. You go, what does that mean? He's going to explain it in a second, but he gives three ways you might get persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you. They just say mean things to you. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Now they take it to the next level and try and hurt you. Or blessed are you when people say, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In other words, they make things up about you. These are three examples of ways you might get attacked. But you're blessed. What is he talking about? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The Bible says the three things about being um, blessed because we're attacked. Three things. One is this one right here. If you are attacked or persecuted because of you st- standing up for Christ, at some point in time, he will reward you. Point number one. Point number two, uh, when you are attacked, it actually strengthens your faith. It's really easy to be a Jesus follower when everything's going great much harder when people start attacking you. The third thing, in a weird way, it confirms you're going in the right direction. I once heard someone say this to me. They said, they said um, if you're not constantly running into Satan, it might be because you're both heading in the same direction. And the idea that I'm bumping into life situations because I'm trying to stand up for Christ actually is a confirmation in a weird way that I'm probably doing the right thing. Because living for Jesus is not easy. And if everything in life is easy for you right now, that should be a little bit of a red flag. A little bit of a red flag related to who you are and what you're doing. So just, just know this. Be aware of this. Protect yourself. Okay? So the story goes on, and, and this is what we read. Let's put the next slide up there. Verse 15 and 16. The Jews in Susa, that's the capital of the city, put to death 300 men, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed, notice this, 75,000 of them. We're going to talk about the killing and the dying here in a second. 
But again, it says they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The reason I highlight this is because anytime you're reading something in the Bible and it repeats the same time over and over and over again, which it does in this chapter, three, four times, it keeps saying that phrase. It's trying to teach you something. It's trying to give you some perspective as something important. What's so important about this? Well, you've got to take a couple steps back and remember the whole book of Esther, the culture and society that they're living in. Let me give you the big picture, and this will make sense in a second. The next slide shows us the, I, the world that they lived in at the time, a world that was without God. They didn't care about God. And a world without God is consumed with, and you've got a list there that we've seen in the book of Esther. It's consumed with pleasure and parties. Consumed with it. Every other chapter, King Xerxes is having a party and getting drunk. Every other chapter. It's consumed with good looks and sex. There's, there's no nice way to say this. Um, Esther was forced into it, but no easy way to say this. The reason she became queen is because she was good in the sack. That's exactly what the scripture says. The reason she was queen is because she was hot. And that's what the king wanted. Now, she was forced into that. In chapter 2, we read about that. But here you've got a, a man. Here you have a culture that is consumed with not how good you look on the inside, who you are as a person on the inside, but how you look on the outside. Okay? It, it's consumed with power and position. That's the whole prime minister, Haman. That's all King Xerxes. You know, the whole movie 300 is about him invading this country and invading that country and killing this person, killing that person. That's King Xerxes. And it's consumed with wealth and materialism, getting more, 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 more. So go back to the question, why did the Jews not take the plunder? They had every right to defend themselves, every right to kill people who attacked them, and every right to take the plunder. Why didn't they? It's a simple answer. Because this is, this is a group of people saying, we will, we will not live that way. That will not be our standards, the left side of the screen. We are going to choose to live for something that's different. By the way, what's on the left side of the screen isn't all wrong. It's, not, it's when you're consumed by it. It's when you're driven to live a certain way. We have every right to the plunder, but we are not going to be consumed with wealth and materialism. We don't want anyone to think that we're doing this to try and get ahead. We're just trying to protect our families. We're just trying to save our lives. Principle number one about living in a, in a, 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 a godless culture is you've got to know you're going to come under attack. So get ready. Principle number two is you have to incorporate God into your decision making. You have to incorporate God into your decision making. One of the things you have to understand about living for Jesus is that it's not cool to live for Jesus. It just isn't. Uh, when you, when you try and live for Jesus, people like we just talked about, will make fun of you and not think you're that, that, that great of a person. What what do you, what do you mean? You don't want another beer. What do you want? What do you mean? You don't want another drag. What what do you mean? You don't want to get laid. What do you mean? You won't want to cheat your boss on, on the expense account. What what do you mean? You don't want to cheat on your spouse when we go away to Vegas. What do you mean? You don't want to cheat on your taxes. Who are you? And you try and stand up for what is right and you think people will honor that and think, wow, that, they're a pretty, pretty nice person. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Who the heck do you think you are? And nevertheless, when you come to these situations at school, at home, at work, in our communities, 
do the right thing. That's what Peter says. Dear friends, I urge you, beg you is what he says. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. That's the battle you're in. That was point number one. And then he says this, be careful to live properly. Live properly. In other words, incorporate God into your decisions. Incorporate God into your world. Old Paso, Chile was the first company that tried to introduce salsa in America. Salsa is today the number one condiment. I don't know if you know that. It's a $2 billion industry. It used to be ketchup. Now it's salsa. Everybody loves salsa. But when it was first introduced, people didn't like it. And and they did a study on it, uh, this company, and they determined why they didn't like it. Two reasons. It's too hot and it's too spicy. We don't want salsa, right? And so so they decided, they came up with a, a, a plan to adjust their salsa to try and sell it. And their adjustment made them millions of dollars. You know what they did? They watered it down. That's all they did. Just water it down. America's too white. They can't handle the salsa. Just water it down. And they made millions. Watering down salsa was a pretty good move. It proved to be successful. Watering down your faith is deadly. It's deadly. And I just want to challenge you. It's not easy. I know it. It is not easy walking out of here and go into a workplace or or a family or a school or a group of friends that don't want to live for Christ. Uh, Understand, one, you're going to come under attack. Two, make a decision now. I'm not going to water down my faith. I'm going to incorporate God. I'm going to incorporate Jesus. I'm going to incorporate his standards into my life and into my decisions. Don't water your faith down. The third point is by far the most controversial because it deal, deals with all the, the death. Let me show you the death going on and the dying going on in chapter 9. Um, verse 6, this is the capital city now. 500 men die. The Jews are protecting men, uh, protecting their families. 500 men die. Also in the capital city, verses nine, uh, 7 through 10, all of Haman, his prime, former prime minister, 10 sons are killed and die. Verse 15, still in the capital city, 300 men also die. And then they they get numbers from around the whole uh, empire. Verse 16, 75,000 men die. This all happens in a period of about 24 hours. Now, sometimes when you read the New Testament and you see all this, it kind of rattles you a little bit. But there's a principle here, and, and, and I've stated it based upon a verse in, cha- in Romans chapter 6 that is very well known. It's at the bottom of the screen there. It says, for the wage or the consequence or the result of sin, when you and I sin, the result of that, what you get from that is death. Now, when Paul says you get death when you sin, there's three intended meanings in the Bible. One is physical death. We see that in in Esther 9. We see that in Genesis 3. The reason you and I will die someday is one reason and one reason only. Because we are sinful and we live in a sinful world. Physical death. Second one is eternal death. It is horrible. We talked about it last week. It's eternal separation from God. Not fun not cool. It's why we are called to reach and share the good news of Jesus with our friends, family members, and community. Physical death, eternal death. The third one is spiritual death. You're still here, but you're not connected to God the way you should be. 
Those are the three primary meanings when it says the word death. But that's not the only meaning. It could mean financial death. How many of us have made financial decisions that were beyond unwise? They were sinful and we've paid for it. Uh, It could be marital death. How many of us have gone through divorce? And as we look back on it now, a little more calm and think through one of the reasons is because I sinned. I, I contributed to killing my marriage. It could be friendship death. It could be career death. It could be educational death. Here's the point. The principle is this. You want to live for Jesus? The principle you have it there. You got to do everything you can. You got to fight it at all costs and protect your soul from sin. Because if you do, don't be prepared for the consequences. Don't be surprised by them. What are the consequences? It's death. Some form or another, you will experience that. One of my favorite stories told by Paul Harvey. I love Paul Harvey because he's a storyteller. He used to be a lot more on the radio. And, um, and he tells a story of how Eskimos traditionally kill wolves. You may have heard how, how they do this. They take a big knife and they dip it in blood and let it freeze. And then they dip it in another layer of blood and let it freeze. And they continue to do this process over and over again until the entire blade of the knife is covered in blood. Then they stick it in the snow and they go home for the evening. In the night, the wolf comes out and he has a very keen sense of smell, is attracted to blood, comes to what to him seems like hometown buffet, right? This is delicious. And he starts licking away and he starts getting consumed and licks quicker and licks faster. It's delicious to a wolf. But as he, he licks, he doesn't realize at some point in time the sharp sting of the edge of the blade that has now begun to show on his own tongue. Furthermore, he doesn't realize that at one point in time, he's not actually drinking the blood that is in the snow. He's drinking his own blood. And in the morning, the Eskimo shows up only to find the wolf bled out and dead on the snow. What a powerful example of what sin does to us. See, here's the point of sin. It's fun at the beginning. It tastes good at the beginning. That's the whole point. You want to do it because it feels good. But then as time goes on, you don't even realize it. And just like that wolf, you have started to self-destroy something in your life. So my challenge for you as someone who deeply cares for you is you got to do whatever you got to do to protect yourself. Now, let me give you a different way to explain it, because when, when, when I say that, some of us don't realize how far we have to go. About 10 years ago, I, I had a little scab right here on my forehead. And the next time I went into my doctor at Kaiser, I asked him, what is this? And so they did some tests and they took it out and they analyzed it. And the doctor came back and said to me, what you had was a precancerous lesion. Now, the minute you hear that word cancer, it catches your attention, right? Uh, We've all had family members or people that have gone through. It is not a good word. And he explained to me, I said, well, how the heck did I get that? He goes, I don't want to alarm you. It's not actually cancer. It's a precancerous lesion. If you would have left it, it would have turned into that. 
And, and he explained to me that more likely the reason I got it was because of how I treated my skin as a young boy. There's a lot of emphasis on sunscreen now, but back when I was a kid, not as much. And he said, you probably were on the sun all the time. I go, yep, you probably didn't put sunscreen on. Nope, never. He goes, your skin has been affected by the sun and it is very susceptible to that. And he says, so as your doctor, this is my instructions. From now on, when you're out in the sun, you, 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 you need to put sunscreen on. And it doesn't have to be, you know, number 50 or something, but you got to put something on. You got to protect your skin. He said, and second of all, you have to, when you're outdoors, if you remember, put a hat on especially because of what's happened on your face and forehead you got so i i took that to, i remember coming home and telling sandy and that that really caught our attention so i was like i gotta put sunscreen on i gotta wear a hat one week after my doctor appointment one week later i took joshua to a park and we were gonna go he was gonna go hit some baseballs right before one of his games or something so we had all the gear you know we had a bunch of baseballs and he had his baseball you know baseball stuff and i was gonna pitch to him and and so i'm we're walking to the field and i'm like oh my goodness i forgot the first time i'm out in the sun since what my doctor told me first time i've not put any sunscreen on and i'm not wearing a hat so i went running back to the car to see do i have a hat now I brought, you guys maybe don't know this, but I'm into hats. Obviously, I can't wear them Sunday morning. I just want to show you some, just some of the hats I have now, okay? So let me just show you. I like this one, right? Golden State Warriors, Splash Brothers, they're doing good, okay? Okay, this is not my favorite team, but it's my daughter's soccer team, Chelsea. So when I coach, I put that sucker on. My favorite soccer team right here, Barca, I'm going to put that one on. I always put this on. When they're playing a game, I know it's not biblical, but I'm very superstitious. I try and help them out and wear my Barca hat. My two favorite football teams, the Chicago Bears, that's where I was born, and the Raiders, right? Uh huh. Now, I got to tell you, it's nice to have two favorite teams because normally one of them is doing well. Unfortunately, the last couple of years, they both kind of sucky. But uh, now, it may surprise you. Everything you guys know about how I like these guys, this is going to surprise you. I also do own and have. I do. I know that's it. But I will tell you normally how I use this hat. Let me just explain. I turn it inside out this way. And then I put my hand through here and I use it to pick up my dog's treasures in the backyard. (laughs) See how I set that one up? (laughs) Okay, this is SOS. This is my missions hat. When I go to Africa, this is the organization I go with. So I wore that. My cow's bear hat. Every time I go to a cow game, I like to wear a cow. My golf hat. I got like about 15 more hats at home, right? I couldn't find my Cubs hat. I think they're going to win it this year. That's my baseball team. Who's laughing at that? I just want the Cubs to win once before Jesus comes back. But um, my, So I got all these hats. I go back to the trunk. Back to my story. I've only got one hat in that trunk. None of the cool ones. I kid you not. This is the only hat that I could find. That's all that's in there. Right? <laughs> I'm not making this up. So there I go. Guys, like Josh is like, what's going on? When are we going to go? And I was like, um. So I had to sit. I either kind of like not listen to my my doctor or i put this on so i put it on 
And I still remember I'm walking on the park and all the parents are looking at me. You know, people are like, this, this guy an idiot or something? I still remember. Keep your elbow in, Josh. Come on. Hit just, no, you're not taking a picture. Put that down. Um, <laughs> so here's my point. Why did I do this? Why did I do this? Because at least for 30 minutes, I didn't care if I looked like an idiot. I wanted to protect my skin. After what the doctor had told me, I, I was, I was going to look goofy if I had to. Now, this is going to make sense. Your soul is far more valuable than your skin. And if you do what this book says to protect yourself, every once in a while you will have to do things that make you look stupid in the eyes of everyone else. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. When I say protect yourself from sin at all cost, I mean at all cost. Because the damage that it does to your soul, to your family, to your relationships is so devastating. You want to live for Jesus? You want to live for God? I think you do. That's why you're here. I'm giving you that benefit of the doubt. Do whatever you got to do, even if you look a little crazy. Let's move on. Okay. Next verse. I think this was interesting. I read this chapter. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Stacy. I forgot this. Let me show you this. Each person is tempted when dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed after desire has conceived. It gives birth to sin. When sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Same principle. James one. It starts with desire. Not necessarily wrong, but then deception. I think I can get something out of it that I really can't get. Leads to disobedience and sin goes to death. I could give you verse after verse after verse. And they all conclude the same thing. Sin in your life will always end up in some form of death. So don't do it. Okay. Uh, thank you, Stacy. Let's put the next verse up there. Verse 20. Purim is established. That's the title of what happens next. I gave you that because it's the name of the feast. Now, I read this over and over and over again, but I didn't catch that last little phrase that I've highlighted until just this last week. Mordecai recorded these events. He sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far. Have them celebrate. We, we were alive. We're not dead. Have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them, observe these days, have parties and feasting and joy, give presents of food to one another, and make sure you also give gifts to the poor. I, you know what? I, I read this over and over again, and I just, I don't know, I just didn't see it. It's maybe kind of how we live our lives. Isn't it true when life's going great? Everything's going wonderful in life. It, it all tends to focus on ourselves. If you want to live for God in, in a world that doesn't necessarily want you to live for God, one of the things you must never forget is this principle right here. Let's put the next slide up there. Whatever you do, make sure you never forget to show compassion to the less fortunate. Always be aware there are people out there that are hurting. They are poor and they are hungry and they are orphaned and they are homeless. They're hurting. Don't make life all about yourself. Just a couple verses. Luke chapter 3. Jesus says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. 
Whoever has food is to do likewise. I have friends that work at the rescue mission. And they tell me, uh, and it's, by the I don't know, it's going to sound weird. Christmas and Thanksgiving, I never donate food. You know why? They got so much, they don't know what to do with it. They, they get so, because everybody feels good at Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. Do you know when organizations like the rescue mission and others most need food? Times like right now. There's, it's not fancy. It's not cool to give now. It's cool to give at Thanksgiving, right? And he says, make sure that you, you share with those who don't. In the back there, there's two barrels back there that our CIA, Compassion and Action Ministry, has put back there and said, hey, we're collecting clothes, uh, warm clothes for, for, for people that are homeless. Now, for two weeks, we've announced that. How many of us, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I really, and we've gone home, we got, we got jackets we don't wear in our closet, in our garage. We still haven't brought them, have we? And my point is, it's so easy to just kind of, and we can all agree with it and then leave, leave here and kind of forget about it. Um, and we, we can't. God says, you want to live for me? Just notice people that are hurting. Proverbs, two verses from Proverbs 14. Um, he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. Isn't that interesting? Proverbs 19. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him. God's like, help. Now, now, understand this. You can't help everybody. Don't feel bad about saying no at times. You can't help everybody, but pick somebody. Pick some group, some organization you can help. I, I came across this study from a guy called Dr. Kurt Gray from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he analyzed the Save DeFore uh, Facebook page. If you don't know what's going on in DeFore, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, um, decades of famine, drought, and oppression, not cool. Sudan sent their troops in. It's an absolute disaster. Disaster, right? So they set up this, this, this Facebook page. By the way, I looked up statistics this morning to make sure I was, I was accurate. In, in Defour, 450 people, uh, 450,000 people murdered, 2.5 uh, million people hungry, 4.5 million people displaced from their homes. It's horrible what's going on there. So they set up this Facebook page, Save to Four Facebook page, right? Uh, that, that Facebook page has 1.1 million members. And they've all indicated by being part of that Facebook page that they're concerned and want to support and want to help what's going on and to four. Well, this particular guy, Dr. Gray, um, did an analysis of everybody on that, on that website right on that Facebook page. Here's what he came up with. 99.8% of those who liked that page hadn't donated one penny, hadn't contributed anything, hadn't written one letter, hadn't done anything to actually help. 99.8. And this is his conclusion. They raised... They did virtually nothing compared with what a similar campaign would have raised offline. The reason, and this I think is interesting, the reason is that you got to look good without having to pay. It's pretty interesting. Um, I think for the most part we do a decent job as a church, but I just want to encourage you. Um, 
Find something you're passionate about. Find a family on your street that needs a bag of groceries. Go to, go to CIA or any organization that you know of that is helping the less fortunate and either give to them or be part of that organization. But here's my point. If you want to live differently, God reminds us it's not just about all the people sitting around you here this morning that look good and smell good and are well-fed. It's about all the people that are outside of these doors that aren't well-fed and aren't doing well. So figure out what it is for you and do something, okay? Um, let's wrap it up. The last little section of the, of the book, verses 26 through 28. Therefore, these days, this celebration was called Purim from the word pure. It means dice or lot, okay? It's what Haman used to decide when he was going to kill all the Jews. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them would without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed at the time appointed. We have a couple people that are Jewish heritage in this church, and they have told me growing up as kids. Every year in synagogue, they would celebrate this day. They would read the entire book of Esther. And when they mentioned Haman, everybody would boo. And, and it's still to this day, they, they do that, right? And they're told these days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province, in every city. And these days, this celebration of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, Jews nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Let me give you the summary slide and point number five. If you want to live for God, remember you are in a spiritual battle. Remember to incorporate God in your decisions. Remember to protect yourself from sin at all costs. Remember to show compassion to the people who are less fortunate. And this last point from these last chunk of verses, remember and celebrate God's victories and successes in your life. Would you agree with me that sometimes we get so consumed in what I'm going through right now, my problems right now, my issues right now, what I lack right now, we get so focused on now and today, we don't take a minute to look back to see how many times God has blessed us, how many times God has helped us, how many times God has bailed us out. And the point is this, when you take a moment to remember and celebrate your past and specifically what God has done in your past, it actually gives you a better perspective and it makes you more healthy right now in your present. That's the issue. Um, when we were looking to hire a, a children's pastor, I, had, I was talking to a consultant in Phoenix, and she had just done a study trying to analyze what made the greatest spiritual impact on children. The greatest spiritual impact on children. Do you want to you know what she told me based upon her research? The greatest impact wasn't some cool VBS. It wasn't some great children's program. It wasn't camp, summer camp. The greatest spiritual impact that they identified in the lives of children was when parents would tell their kids when, why, and how they gave their life to Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Our kids are most impacted when instead of focusing on where we're at right now, we say, hey, I want to tell you the kind of man or woman I was before Jesus. And you tell them everything. And you say, this is what I did and this is who I was, but then this is why I came to Jesus. Question, have you ever told your kids your testimony? When I heard that, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Take a moment to look back. 
take a moment to remember. Yes, you have issues now. Yes, you have problems now. But how about all the issues and problems that God's helped you with over the years? Just take a moment and put it on perspective. I came across this story about one couple that were intentionally looking back and celebrating. I thought this was a great story. Um, it, it, it was a, a diner in, ten, I think it was Tennessee, and the total bill came to $28.12. The couple left a tip of $36. And they also left this note. Today is my brother's birthday. He would have been 36 today. Every year I go out and I eat his favorite meal, hot dogs, and I celebrate by tipping the waitress his age. Happy birthday, Wes. This hit the news and it's become national news as kind of a feel-good story. The waitress that was, uh, received that really big tip um, was quoted as saying this, it's the best tip I've ever gotten, not because of the mo- money, but because of the meaning of the meaning could i encourage you don't just don't get so focused on now don't get so focused on your present that you don't take a moment to remember to reflect and to celebrate all the good things god has blessed you with either now or in the past it makes you a better you now when you do that This is how I want to end up the whole study in the book of Esther it's this right here i found this interesting Purim, which is the celebration in chapter 9, comes from the word, the, the Persian word pure or, or poor, which means lot or dice, okay? Lot, dice, or chance. But Purim is in, the, is in the plural form. So it literally means lots or chances. You want to know what the point of Esther is? The whole point of the whole book is this. I'll take my chances with God. I, I, if I got to choose... I'm going to take my chances with God. Why do I say chance? Because here's the thing. You know, the issues, the problems that you and I have right now. The reality is, I don't know how God's going to fix that or if God's going to fix that. I really don't. But you know what? I don't have to. I don't need to figure out God's timing. All I got to do is reflect on God's character. And whether he bails me out or he doesn't bail me out, where he takes care of the problem or he doesn't take care of the problem. I know he knows best. So if you're asking me, which direction am I going to go? I'm going to take my chances with God. And that's what I want to challenge you to do. If you're here and you're trying to decide, what do I do? Where do I go? My challenge, take your chances with God. You're not going to be disappointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here today because we want to live for you. We are here today. Uh, because you want to, we want you to make a difference in our lives. Father, thank you for what you've taught us in this book. Thank you for how you've stretched me in this book. Heavenly Father, um, remind us we are in a spiritual battle. Some of us live our lives um, like we're at Disneyland. Remind us it's more like a battlefield. Spiritually speaking, it's a battlefield. Father, the reality is some of us have not uh, protected ourselves from sin. We've entertained it. We've cultivated it. Some of us right now, we've got sins in our life. um, And and we think it's no big deal because they're small sins. Father, remind us of the story of the wolf. Remind us how that small sin grows and then it captures our soul. And then eventually begins to strangle the spiritual life right out of us. 
Father, I know how your Holy Spirit is. And right now, he's speaking to many of us, even right now, convicting us of something we got to stop doing. Father, give us the courage. Give us the perseverance. Give us your reminder and your Holy Spirit's power to break that sin in our life. Father, I thank you that, uh, that the story of Esther reminds us more than anything else that in the end, you win. In the end, you always win. And that doesn't mean that everything works out in my life. Father, remind me that my life is not just about my comfort. My life, more than anything else, should be about your glory. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.